Thank you for tuning in to the Northfield Podcast Network. We appreciate you being here and taking time out of your schedule to listen to our audio resources. The sermon that you're about to hear is part of the Northfield Podcast Network's Sermon Audio Resource Vault. We pray that this sermon audio resource encourages you and benefits you this week and brings all glory to God. Thank you for listening. We're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 2. But Acts chapter 2, and last week, um, we left off, and the group of the disciples were gathered together. Remember where they, they were originally were on the mount, Jesus lifted up, went up into the clouds, they stood there for a few minutes, for a while, I guess, just staring into the sky at uh, what they had just seen, what they had just witnessed, and they were then told by two angels, hey, what are you doing? This Jesus that you saw go up, he, he, he will come back again. He's coming back. That go. Remember, Jesus said, listen, go and wait in the city. In verse, uh, so we know in verse 2, or verse, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. So they were all together in one place. So where was that one place? Well, I'm glad you asked. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, tell us where they were. They had returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem on Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room and they were there staying uh, with Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. All were in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. So they're in the upper room together, praying, asking the Lord Jesus to um, bring his promised Holy Spirit. And so that's, that's what they're waiting on. According to the text in verse 1-8, it tells us Jesus told his disciples and they said that, uh, so when they had come together, they asked the Lord, will this be the time that the kingdom's going to be restored? He said, you don't know the time or the place for this to happen, but here's what I'm going to need you to do. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit as it comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria all the way to the end of the earth. So they're gathered together in the upper room waiting for this, this to happen. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and, and be upon them, come upon them. And Jesus tells them that the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them. And the day of Pentecost arrives in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Pentecost means 50th. It refers to the Feast of Weeks or of the Feast of Harvest, which was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. I just, as I thought about that wording... The, the Feast of the Harvest, I can't help but think of Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, that says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when they saw the crowds, um, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. And the laborers are so few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in his harvest. What we're about to see in Acts chapter 2 in just a few moments was going to be one of the greatest revivals, one of the greatest harvests that the world had ever seen. It just was fantastic to see what is about to take place. And Luke records this again in the words of Jesus in chapter 24. He says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with the power from on high. Then he led them out far as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into the heavens. So they worshiped and returned to Jerusalem with all great joy and were continuing to in the were continually in the temple blessing God. So they're all gathered together. They're waiting. It's the it's the day of Pentecost. And, and there's this anticipation because they've just seen Jesus go up. And so they're thinking, what is coming next? We've experienced the three years that just rocked our worlds. We've given up everything for the, thing, for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is coming next? And so they're gathered together in Jerusalem. And it depends on who you read and what you read. But it seems there was a time period of between 7 and 10 days from when Jesus was ascended into heaven. And the disciples waiting for this event to take place. But they didn't, really, they didn't know. Jesus didn't tell them when he... Listen, Tuesday at 4 o'clock, it's going to happen. He didn't tell them. He just said, go wait. Go back and and, and wait. They didn't know what day it was going to happen on. They just knew that Jesus told them to do something. And they said the promise of the Father is coming. And so they went and they waited. They were longing for the kingdom to be established. Like that was their earnest desire was to see the kingdom of God established. They wanted to see evil destroyed. They were longing to see Jesus take control and wipe out the evil government that was there. And so they're in this like they're in this season where they're waiting and they're longing for the Lord Jesus Christ to do some things. And so they're waiting in Pentecost. They're waiting on the day of Pentecost in the upper room. And this is what they're longing for, for Jesus to do something, for Jesus to come back. And my dear brothers and sisters this morning, we are in this same season We're in the same season now, just like the disciples were. We are waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. We have been told that we will not know the day or the hour. Like it's just, we will not know the days or the hour. According to Matthew chapter 24, go over there. If you've got your Bibles, go just flip over to a couple couple of pages. Go over to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus tells us in verse 36, but concerning that day, the day of the return of the Lord, But concerning the day and the hour, no man knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For we, for as it were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. So we were given a little clue. We're given a glimpse into this. It's okay. The return of the Lord is going to happen. You don't know the day or the hour, but here's what it's going to be like. It's going to be like the days of Noah. What were the days of Noah like? Verse 38 tells us. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark 
and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so we've, we've got this picture that's painted for us that, that we're waiting for the Lord to return. We don't know, but we've, we've given this clue that it's going to be like those days. Well, what were the days of Noah like? Glad you asked. 2 Timothy chapter 3 gives us a clear picture of these days that we're living in. Because the days of Noah, the reason the flood came, God wasn't looking to water the plants. As we were established in Sunday school this morning, God was already watering the plants and having things happen as they needed to be. The reason the flood came was for judgment purposes. The world was full of evil, was full of wickedness, was full of vileness, was full of immorality, was full of just awful things. And God said, what? It grieved God's heart that he had made man. And so he's going to destroy it. So Noah builds an ark. And for a hunt, listen to this. Talk about worried about having a fruitless ministry. Noah preached for 120 years and the only people that survived and went with him were his, his wife and his kids. But he was a success in God's eyes. If you can get your family saved, that's a success. If you can see your family saved, that is a success. But what, what are the... What were some of the signs that we're living in the last days? 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us this. I mean, it, it tells us up front in verse 1, chapter 3. But understand this. In the last days. So these are the days that are going to happen before Jesus returns. This is what it's going to look like before Christ returns. There will come a time of difficulty. Hmm. It's not difficult in the world we live in right now, is it? Everything's peachy and awesome. Oh, okay, it's not? Okay. There will be times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. Nobody's a love. No. Everyone thinks about somebody else. They never think about themselves. They're always thinking about somebody else's good and how to take care of them, right? No, okay. They'll be lovers of selves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceits, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying the power therein. People on a wholesale level are ignoring the signs of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter chapter 3 also gives us more into this. This was Peter talking about the return of the Lord. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Beloved, in both of them, I am stirring you up. So Peter's trying to stir the church up. I'm stirring you up to, to a sincere mind by way of remembrance. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing first that all that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following after their sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens were existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water and by the word of God. And that by 
the means of these, the world existed, was flooded with water and was perished. Man, we are living in these days, ladies and gentlemen. We're living in days when people are not concerned with the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not concerned with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a growing, just overwhelming movement that is um, people are scoffing and laughing at the idea that Jesus could return. They're laughing at these things, saying there's no way that Jesus could come. Could they ever, ever happen? They're ignoring the signs that were there. And one of the and, and here's the thing: one of the largest signs that we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return is that May, May 1948, May of 1948, um, Israel was established and turned returned back into her land. One of the largest signs that Jesus is going to return. But people on a wholesale level are ignoring these things. And I believe the days that the disciples long to see you and I are in these days right now. And I believe that these are so important. I believe that we're living in these days right now. I believe that the Lord Jesus is coming back. And my goodness, if we believe that, we ought to be telling people about the first time he came. Amen? We should be telling people about the return of G- or about the, the first coming of Christ if we believe that he's going to return again. And I do believe that he's, gonna, he's returning again. So they're back to Acts chapter 2. That was all in an introduction. Back to Acts chapter 2. Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house and they were, that they were sitting in. And they divided tongue as fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Now, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, at the, at the sound, so everybody heard this. This wasn't just something that the disciples heard. They, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It stirred the multitude up. They heard this and they were like, wait a minute. And they all came together and they were bewildered because each one of them hearing them speak in their own language. They were hearing these Gentiles speak in their own language. And they were amazed, verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these speaking Galileans? Like this is what, are all these folks not rednecks? These a bunch of hicks. Galileans were uneducated hicks from the sticks. I'm going to tell you something, God uses uneducated hicks from the sticks. And they were amazed and they were astonished. And they said, how is it that we're hearing each of us in our own native tongues? Parthens, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, or sorry, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phygia. Man, that last one, yeah, Egypt. And parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, create, or Cretans and Arabs, and all hearing them tell in their own tongues the mighty works of God. So we've got everybody from everywhere is gathered together in one place, and the Holy Spirit comes down on the, on the disciples, 
And they begin to speak in different languages. It's like me speaking, oh, I'm from, I'm from, I'm Oklahoma, I'm Okie, speaking Okie, and I get into Mexico, and they start hearing Spanish. How'd that happen? That's exactly what took place here. It is a, a divine act of God's power on them, and they begin to preach the gospel, the, the wonders of God. It says, verse 13, and all of them were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does it mean? But then you've all, you're always going to have a couple in the group. Verse 13, but others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. It means they're drunk. These people are drunk. And Peter gets up and he's going to give them a... Holy Ghost filled tongue lashing here in verse 14. Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them and said, Men of Judea and all others who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known that you, to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose they are, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's early. They're not drinking. Not, nobody's drunk. Verse 16. But this is what the Lord uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be. Remember, oh wow, here we go. We're talking about the last days again. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and my sons and my daughters shall prophesy. And all young men shall have, young men shall see visions and old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and they shall um, show wonders in the heaven. There should be shown wonders in the heavens and signs in the earth below. Blood, fire, vapor, smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the days of the Lord come, the great and magnificent day, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So we've got all of these things taking place and we see all these things happening and these, these men and these women begin to speak in different languages and people start hearing the gospel and they're amazed and they say, wait a second, aren't these people, they're not, they're not from my region. They're not from my area. They're not, they don't live where I live, but they can speak my language. We live in a Christian culture right now where there are people... Um, <laughs> That, uh, that believe that you and I, all of us, should be able to speak in tongues. And this is the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit is all of us should be able to speak in tongues. And it's a sign that the Holy Spirit is in you. There are, there are churches this morning that are teaching that if you are not speaking in tongues, that you are not sealed by the Holy Spirit. I'm getting ready to quote a lady here in just a minute. Um, who, who teaches this kind of stuff. But one of, the, one of the statements in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is that in the last days, there will be people that have a form of godliness, but it will deny the power of God. Now, there's a certain religious group that teaches that, and believes that being able to speak in tongues is a sign that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And that, that, that's when your salvation takes full effect is when you speak in tongues. This is what some teach in churches today. One article that I read from a charismatic woman named Reverend Nadine Draylon Keene. First thing we got a problem with is it's a woman preacher. That's number one. Um, she says the following. Three new languages, new tongues that are evidence in believers having been sealed by the Holy Spirit or baptized by the Holy Spirit. 
Um, once again, these are the three different types of prayer languages. Number one, prayer tongues. Number two, praise tongues. And number three, prophetic tongues. She then goes on and says, speaking in tongues is for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Though it is possible to live a born-again saved life without receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and thus without ever speaking in tongues, the divine truth is that Christians live... Christians living minus the baptism of the Holy Spirit are living a powerless life. Oh my word. And a Christian life without speaking in tongues is a life without rest and without refreshment. Therefore, contrary to popular opinion, the only biblical rec- uh, recorded observable physical outward sign that proves believers have been baptized with the Holy Spirit is the evidence of speaking in tongues. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the kind of heretical, hellish nonsense that's being pushed out in the charismatic church. The charismatic church is wicked at its core. It has a, it had, there are, and there are men and women that are in it that have good intentions, but the foundations upon which the charismatic church is founded is wicked. And if you are teaching this from, if, the, if you hear a preacher stand in the pulpit and teach this kind of nonsense, man, run! Run from that place. Because the problem, because here's the deal. The problematic issue is that this woman's never read the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So when you heard the gospel and believed it, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So when you heard the gospel preached and you believed it is the moment that you were saved. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit the moment of your conversion. And the the moment that Christ regenerated your heart was the moment that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Period. Period. And to say that you must speak in tongues in order to be sealed by the Holy Spirit is absolute nonsense and heresy. You'll also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, and in verse 14, um, there's this push in the charismatic movement. Because when, when you press a charismatic person on the speaking in tongues thing, they'll say, well, it's my prayer language. It's my prayer language. It's my prayer language. That's what I want. It's my prayer language. It's, it's just between me and the Lord, and it's my prayer language. And read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2. And they push these verses and they push this agenda and they push these things. I'll just read it so you guys don't think I'm making it up. First Corinthians chapter 14 verse 2 says this. And this is the verse that they try to use and say, this is, this is the one. This is, how we, this is how we know. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So... If you read this text and you understand the original language and look at it, it's actually pressing at this idea. Um, the word, look at the word, the verbiage there. For the one who speaks in a what? Tongue. Notice it's not plural, it's singular. Tongue is singular. And when you see this and you dig into it and you study it, um, this singular structure and use indicates that it refers to a false gibberish praying in a false 
gibberish tongue. Verse 14 also continues and says, um, look, at, look at verse 14 in 1 Corinthians. Um, For if I pray in a tongue, once again it's singular, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Wait a minute, what? Am I, yeah, is my spirit, am I sincere? Are these, some of these people I believe sincerely praying in this, you know, whatever they want. Shabbat Honda. They're praying false gibberish to a false God. It is a, it continues in verse 14, the singular use of the word. Paul says in verse 14, it is unfruitful. It does not help whatsoever. Biblically, biblically, the only time tongues is to be used is when the gospel is being proclaimed. Example would be if I went to Czechoslovakia and I'm from America, I'm an American English speaking man and I go to Czechoslovakia and I get to preach the word and I open my mouth and when I preach the Holy Spirit descends on me and does a work and as a result the Czechoslovakian people hear Czech instead of English out of my mouth. That is the divine Holy Spirit gift of tongues. When you get somebody getting up here and holding on a mic and they run up and down the aisle and they start going, that kind of stuff is hellish in nature. You watch these crazy people on TV that do that kind of nonsense. It's hellish in nature and it should never be done in church. It is wrong, it's wicked, and it's evil and I believe it will be judged by God. You read that text in 1 Corinthians, it is a false gibberish to a false pagan God. All right, go back to Acts 2. I know, y'all, you know me, keep your fingers ready. Acts 2, go back to Acts 2. Verse 5 through 12. What happens? They were dwelling in the midst of this. The men and women hear this. They begin to see that the gospel is preached in their own tongues. These simple Galileans, these group of blue-collared people come together and they begin to preach the gospel. And Jesus takes what humans see as backwoods and simple and he uses it to confound the wise. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says, But God chose the things that are foolish in the world's eyes to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. <laughs> so these simple men began to speak foreign languages, multiple languages, and all these people hear the gospel in their own language. And so they're amazed and they're shocked. And of course, like I said, in any setting, you're going to have some, even they're going to ignore the evidence. They're going to be like, wait, are you hearing Spanish? You hearing Judea? You hearing these different languages? Yeah, I'm hearing it. Man, they're drunk. They're drunk. They're crazy drunks. That's what they are. No. You see, men and women being saved, you see the men and women being saved and you still mock. You still ridicule. It's proof that not everybody gets it. Not everybody gets it. So God, see, or, I'm sorry. Uh, so we see what happens next in verse 13. Verse 13. We see that happen. 
And but Peter gets up and he gives the crowd this divine tongue lashing, verses 14 through 21, telling them that these men aren't drunk, but rather the God Almighty has unleashed his divine power on them to show the power of the gospel. He quotes from the book of Joel to the crowd in verses 22 through 36. Peter preaches about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in, those, in the text in verse 22 through 36. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with the mighty works of the wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And you yourselves know who this is. So Jesus has only been gone a little bit. So he's like, listen, you know about Jesus. He's stirring up ruckus in this area. You know who he is. Verse 23 says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the, to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him. <laughs> You're gonna, don't forget that. You guys killed him. He died on the cross. Verse 24, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at the right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in the hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let my Holy One see cor corruption. You have made known to me the paths of your life and you make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers. I may say to you with confidence about the, the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. So he's saying, listen, David was, David was a descendant and Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is here. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the one. He died on the cross for your sins. He was buried in the tomb and God raised him back to life for your justification. And he preaches all this through verse 41. And then, and then you look at verse 37. Now, when they had heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They heard the gospel and their hearts were pricked by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws these men and women to him and says, man, brothers, what do we do? What do we do? And the sound of the gospel being preached they were convicted of their sins and they desired to be saved in verse 37 through 41. They were cut to their core. And in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, we're told that for the word of God is a living, active thing, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints of the marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So the gospel pierces these men and women's hearts. To where they come alive to this idea of Christ Jesus. And then they're excited. So they're cut to the core. And then they have a desire to be saved. And they say, what does it say? Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift from the Holy Spirit. So they're cut. <clears throat> now. 
One more thing and then we'll be done because I need us to see this. We talk about baptism all the time here. We baptize people in here. There is nothing saving of the, the water that's in there. It's just Cedarvale water. There's nothing special or, or divine about that water. People try to take this text and say, okay, listen. This is the text that says you've got to be baptized to be saved. This is, once again, you've got to read the original language. English sometimes doesn't do it right. Instead of reading there, repent and be baptized, it needs to say because of, or, or, or I'm sorry, where it says repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Instead of saying for the forgiveness of sins, a proper, a better interpretation would be because of the forgiveness of your sins, you should be baptized. Because you've been saved by grace through faith alone, you should be baptized. Baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The water has nothing to do with your salvation. It's Christ that does the saving, period. And when we see in verse 40 and 41, Peter continues his sermon and three thousand people get saved that day revival breaks out harvest comes and when god's word is preached we will see men and women saved like here's the thing we're seeing men and women saved in this place amen we're seeing men and women coming to know christ here they said the holy spirit's awakened me to these things it's not caleb gordon i'm just some gentile i'm some backwoods hick that doesn't know anything this is proof that the Holy Spirit works. It's not, oh, Caleb, you're awesome. I'm not awesome. Okay, Tyler. But I can tell you this much, that Jesus Christ is awesome. And His Word is even more, it's just powerful. The Scripture is a sharper than any two-edged sword. And men and women are being saved because they realize they're sinful and they're going to hell. And they say, man, I don't want that. These men and women at this text... They saw that they were going to hell. They saw they were lost. They said, what? Now, when they had heard these things, they were cut to the core. They were cut to their very heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what do we need to do? What are we going to do? And Peter, Peter didn't go, well, good luck. Have a good time. Peter said, what? Repent. Repent. The goal of the church is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the moment we stop doing that is the moment that we stop being the church. We cease being a church if we're not preaching the gospel. The Rotary Club, the Kiwanis, the Boy Scouts, all these organizations, FFA, 4-H, all, they're great organizations, wonderful places. All these organizations do nice things, but they do not do things that transform your eternity. The church is the only organization that has an eternal impact on your soul. Invest in the church. Be a part of the church. And man, we see this beautiful thing happen in the text. And these men and women are saved and they're brought back to life. And, and it's, it's just incredible. So we see this beautiful gift. So they were received. So they, those who received his word were baptized and they were added to their day in that day about 3,000 souls. So added 3,000. I mean, imagine that. Imagine how long that church service took. You think baptizing three or four folks 
is time consuming. Let's line up three grand in here. My arm is going to get really tired. Right? I'm going to have to grab a couple of my other grubs. Sam, a couple of you guys, get it. let's get in the water together. We're going to start dunking them three at a time. Let's go. Or we're going to go to the lake or to the river. Just line up on the river bank and start dunking them. That's what they did here. They just went to the body of water and started dunking But this, like, this is... This is the birth of the church. We're seeing the church come about. And as a result of this taking place right here, you and I are here today. Woo! Like, that's awesome. That's awesome that God has done his work to, per, to, to do what's necessary and get us to where we are today in 2021. This is incredible that all this stuff took place. And listen, you're going to see as we read through this, everybody wasn't going... Yeah, that's awesome. Come on, more. The officials, the government of that day started saying, wait a minute, I don't like this. They started putting people in jail. They started killing people. Oh, it'll never happen in America because we're so righteous here. God will judge a wicked nation and we're seeing the beginning of that now. And you're just over the border in Canada. They're already putting gospel center preachers in jail. There's a brother that's still in jail to this day. For All he did was gather and preach. And they, they filed a, an injunction and, a, and a, some paperwork on June 22nd that makes it illegal to do what we're doing here. Free speech is dead in Canada. Don't think it can't come here. When righteous men are quiet and do nothing, evil will prevail. And we need gospel-centered men and women to stand on the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, thus saith the Lord, this is what we're going to do. We're going to defy tyranny and we're going to preach the gospel. Period. That's what we need in America. Amen? Let's stand together.